Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. So I was, on, I was on staff at this church for 19 years, and when I became the lead pastor, I was 29 years old. I was just this kid. Like, in your church, I feel like an old man, but at my church, I felt like a kid. And so one of the things that I did in order to, like, represent myself as older is I started to grow this beard. And at one point, my beard got big and gangly and just kind of, like, nasty. And, and it was all huge. And so people, people don't always know how to interact with the pastor. You don't know, like, how to have small talk or how to talk to them. And so once I grew this beard, people were like, the beard. We can talk to Mike about the beard. So they would always like talk to me about my beard. And I remember this one day before service, this couple came up to me and they're about 20 years older than me. And and they were asking me about my beard. And they said, what's it been like having a beard? What's it been like for you? 
And so I would like have my responses that I would give when people would ask. And I said, oh, you know, like one of the things that I had no idea of is I had no idea how much maintenance was involved in having a beard. That I thought you just grew it and you just let it grow. And like, this was the sign of, I don't care. I can do whatever I want. But it was actually like requires a lot of work. There are oils and combs and certain kind of razors. And there's like work that's involved. And then I said this, I said, I had no idea how much manscaping was gonna be involved. And this woman who's 20 plus years older than me, her eyes get real big and she leans in and she says, I don't think that means what you think that it means. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, no, no. Like I've had to do a lot of manscaping. And she says, don't, don't say that. I don't <laughs> think that means what you think that it means. And I just kind of laughed like we were in on the joke together and I walked away and I was like, went around the corner and I pulled up my phone and I Googled manscaping. I do not advise Googling manscaping because some stuff that is not safe for church is gonna show up on your phone and your neighbors are gonna see it. At this moment, this moment, I don't think that means what you think that it means. And as, and as we move in Advent further or closer and closer towards Christmas, Advent is, it simply means the arrival. And it's about this anticipation, about this movement, about preparing ourselves to receive the Christ child, about being in a posture where we can be ready for that. What I have found is that sometimes the themes that are a part of Advent, the things that we move through in order to move towards Christmas and to receive the Christ child, that I often want to lean in close when I hear people talking about it. I often want to lean in close when I see the way that people are engaging in it, and I want to say to them, I don't think that means what you think that it means. That's some of, I got a chance to listen to some of Amy's sermon from last week, and that's what she did with hope, that sometimes what happens with Christmas is Christmas becomes this sanitized, sentimentalized thing, and so we, we have these these, these glasses that we look at it with that it's like we're watching a Hallmark movie in the way that Christmas is and then we project that Hallmark movie back onto the stories of the first Christmas and one of the things that Amy did for us is that she said, she said let's not do that with hope. Hope sentimentalized, hope sanitized is just simply optimism but she helped us to see that it's bigger, it's better, it's richer than that. And the re when we can see the reality of what's happening at the first Christmas, when we don't sentimentalize it, when we don't sanitize it, when we're able to say like, oh, I don't think that means what you think that it means, we can push past that and we can not be robbed of the power and the significance and the beauty of what's actually happening at that first Christmas. And so if you have a Bible on you, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. We're gonna hang out, we're gonna hang out in this story, uh, this infant narrative, this Christmas story, the first Christmas. We're gonna try and understand it a bit, peel back some of the layers to get down underneath it a bit, to get some of the power of what's going on there. So Luke chapter two, verse one, says this, that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, growing up, I grew up in the church that I would often read this, and you just kind of have to read this to get past it to get to the good stuff, the stuff that's gonna happen later. That you, This is like the begats that you have, so-and-so begats. So, like you read past that stuff, but Luke here, who's telling the story, he's setting the stage to say something significant, and he's being incredibly intentional about mentioning Caesar Augustus. 
Because to this first audience, to the people who first heard this story, this name would have conjured up all kinds of memories and all kinds of stories and all kinds of images. And so we need to go back in history a little bit further, a little bit before this to 44 BCE in order to sort of set the context for what's going on here, why this name is significant, why Luke would even bring this up here. 44 BCE, Julius Caesar rules the Roman Empire. And in the eyes of many in the Roman Senate, he's gotten too much power. He's consolidated too much power. He as an individual is too powerful, and so they have him murdered. Now, before he's murdered, though, he has adopted his grandnephew. His grandnephew is a guy named Octavian. And he adopts Octavian into his family, and then he gets murdered. And so Octavian is in his line, and he does three things after Julius Caesar is murdered. First, he adopts the family name, Caesar. The second thing he does is he's determined that he's going to kill his father's murderers, that he's going to avenge his death. And so that sets the stage for a decade-long civil war that engulfs the entire Roman Empire. The third thing that he does is he holds these public games in, in honor of Julius Caesar, his adopted father. And it's at these games that a comet appears in the sky. And as everyone who's gathered at these games sees this comet appear in the sky, they say, that's a sign, that's a sign that Julius Caesar is divine. That is Julius who's ascended, they said, after his death into heaven to sit at the right hand of Zeus. Octavian then realized, if my father is a god, well then what does that make me, his adopted son? I'm the son of God. And so people began to refer to him in that way. And in fact, we actually have coins. Archaeologists have discovered coins from this period of time that have these lines printed on it because in that time, the way that an empire would spread propaganda was through the coins because you don't have mass media. You can't just put something on social media. You can't just buy some Google ads. You can't buy some TV time. You can't put some stuff on YouTube. You can't put things in newspapers. You can't send out mass mailers. And so in that culture, how, if you have a message that you want to get out through the empire, how do you do that? You put it on coins because it's going to go throughout the whole empire as you buy and sell and trade your propaganda is going to spread by the way it had nothing to do with this message but when you get into revelation and you begin to read about things being bought and sold and traded it is in it's directly about this when you read about Jesus and he's talking about taxes give to Caesar what he's actually referencing this he's talking about these coins and so these coins were incredibly significant propaganda printed on them one of the coins that archaeologists have discovered says this that Octavian is the son of the deified one. He's the son of God. So Octavian's leading the Roman Empire through this decade of civil war, civil war that engulfs the entire empire, has the attention of the entire empire. And in 31 BCE, Octavian defeats his main rival, Mark Anthony, the predecessor to the Latin pop star, restores, <laughs> restores peace to the kingdom and this is the first time in anyone's memory that there has been peace and order in the world. You remember it from eighth grade, it's the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so Octavian began to be heralded as the bringer of peace. They called him the savior of the empire who has brought peace and salvation. They said the empire that he has established is salvation and Octavian is the savior. In fact, here's how one poet put it at the time. We can put it up on the screen. It says that, Thine age, O Caesar, has brought back fertile crops to the fields. You have brought us a robust economy, O Caesar, has wiped away our sins. 
As long as Caesar is the guardian of the state, neither civil dissension nor violence shall banish peace. Caesar, you, you, as long as you are in your place, as long as you are up there ruling us, we're gonna have a robust economy. Our sins are gonna be dealt with. You are gonna bring us peace and keep our peace. And so around that same time that these things are being said and written, he receives a title, and the title that he gets is Augustus, which means the illustrious one. And so people are calling him Lord. They're beginning to worship him as a God on earth. Octavian, now known as Caesar Augustus, is referred to as the son of God, who's the savior that brought peace into the world. He is the Lord who is worshiped as a God on earth. It's in the midst of this that they begin to celebrate his birth in some pretty significant ways. We have this inscription that archeologists have discovered from nine BCE, so just a bit before the events of Luke 2 are taking place. It says this, that whereas finally the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the, bringing, the beginning of good news concerning him. The birth of Caesar Augustus has been for the whole world. It's for everybody. And it is this good news. Now, if you've been in church a while, you know that the word for good news is in the Greek, it's this word euangelion. And sometimes the way that it's translated in the New Testament is good news. Sometimes the way that it's translated in the New Testament is gospel. That's the gospel of the birth of Caesar Augustus. It's good news for the whole world. And so he's the bringer of peace. But the way that he brought about peace is gospel for the whole world that brings about peace is through military rule, through violence, through oppression. The way that he maintains his peace, the way that the Pax Romana continues to happen is through mass, mass slaughter and through mass enslavement. In fact, just one story, around the time that Jesus is born, the Roman troops capture a city that's just a few miles away from Nazareth where Jesus would grow up. It's a city called Sepphoris. They burn the city, they begin to search out anybody who's left there, and then when they find the ordinary people, just Joe Schmo, when they find them, they enslave them, but when they find the rebels, the people who had actively rebelled against the empire, who had said, the way that you are treating us is not right, the ones who rose up and marched against them and said that we need to live as free people, what they did with them is they imprisoned many of them, but they wanted to make an example of them. And so, up on the hillside, they put up there 2,000 of them who they crucified up on the hills, 2,000 people crucified on the hills so that when you looked up there that you saw this is what you do if you rise up against Caesar. This is what you do if you oppose his leadership. This is how the Pax Romana continues on. This is how peace is going to happen is if, if you obey and you follow the rules. These are the kinds of ways in which the peace of Rome was brought about. This is the way that the Pax Romana was maintained. And so Caesar Augustus, whose birth is being heralded as a good news for the whole world, who's being called the savior who brings peace, he brought about and he maintained that peace through oppression of other people. He brought about and he maintained that peace through his military power, building up the military bigger and bigger and bigger. He brought about and he maintained that peace through violence and then through threats of more violence. He brought it about and he maintained it through destruction, through fear, by mass slaughter, by mass enslavement. His peace was founded on brutality and on devastation. 
And to the people who are first hearing this story from Luke, the people who are first hearing the story of the birth of Jesus, they are not the beneficiaries of that peace. They are not the ones who are getting to enjoy the goodness of that peace. They are the ones who are being oppressed so that the few can have peace. They are the ones who are under threat of violence and mass enslavement and mass slaughter so that the few can have peace. They are the ones whose family members and friends and countrymen were crucified up on the hillside so that the peace could be maintained. And so their view of what the peace of Rome is is very different than what those who are in the Roman Empire, those who are experiencing it, those who are the few who get the benefit of it. It's a very different experience. It was a peace that was experienced by the few at the expense of the many. And so it's not at all incidental that Luke mentions Caesar Augustus in the story of the birth of Jesus. It's much more than just a passing fact. Luke is actually alluding to facts about Caesar that would have been well known by the first people who heard the story that he's writing about here. And so the backdrop of the announcement of the birth of Jesus is so much more than just some sentimentality, so much more than the sanitized version that we often perpetuate. And so when the followers of Jesus began to recognize the peace that came with the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus, as they began to sort of connect some dots and began to look back to what some of the prophets of old, like prophets like Isaiah had said, that, that as they prophesied the birth of this one who would come, whose government would be on his shoulders, and said that, that he'll be given these titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. As they began to anticipate that, it was all with the backdrop of the Pax Romana. And with that being that, what does it mean for there to be a savior who brings peace? We, we've had that. The savior who brings peace does it so that some can live in opulence while others are oppressed and used in order to maintain that standard for the few. And so the Pax Romana was a peace, but it was a peace that was achieved for just the few through violence and power and threats and oppression. It's the kind of peace, I think of it like this. If you have kids, you have created this kind of peace in your home before. You're driving up to grandma and grandpa's house on, on Christmas afternoon, and you're going up there, and you guys are gonna go have your, your time with them, and as you're driving, your kids are in the back seat, and they're bickering, and they're fighting, and you pull over, and you say, if you guys can't stop fighting and be quiet for the rest of the drive, then we're going home, and you're not getting Christmas presents from grandma and grandpa. Your kids are gonna be quiet for the rest of the drive. And you could say, you could say, you get to grandma and grandpa's house and you could say, wasn't that a peaceful drive up here? <laughs> and in some ways it was, wasn't it? It was, it was quiet. But you know, you know that under the surface it's actually not peaceful. It's quiet, but it's only quiet because the threat is greater than their desire to create a disturbance. That's the Pax Romana. Jesus is born into this culture that declared itself at peace, but it was a peace that was maintained only as long as the threats could hold out. And so it's into that that these angels show up and give an announcement of the birth of Jesus. Skip down to verse eight of Luke chapter two. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. A declaration of a birth that's gonna be good news 
for everyone worldwide that has been heard somewhere before. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. Oh, we know about signs. We know about signs that accompany the one who has been born to bring about, world, the, uh, bring about good news for the whole world. This sign is different. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger, not a sign up in the sky, not a big thing that everyone can see, but this small sign. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host. By the way, um, whenever you find in the scriptures this term heavenly host, it's like, it's like uh, a gathering of angels. You know how every kind of, uh, of like animal has a word for the gathering that you get a group of crows together and it's, it's like death, isn't that what it is? <laughs> Murder, that's what it is. It's murder. This is what happens when you leave the notes. You forget these kinds of things. Great company of heavenly hosts is the gathering of angels and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace in the midst of a culture that's already declared itself at peace. Peace being brought about by a Savior who will be born, whose birth is good news for the whole world, when there's already one who's been born, who's, it's been said, his birth was good news for the whole world, who's the Savior who brought about peace. When the New Testament writers borrow language from the culture, which they actually often do, it's often to show the way of Jesus in direct opposition to what's happening in the culture at large. Even the phrase, Jesus is Lord, was an inherently political statement in the first century. And so you find that phrase over and over in the book of Acts, the story of the early church, but it's just simply borrowing language from Caesar is Lord. And so it was this declaration of allegiance against another allegiance. And so when the New Testament writers taking language that they all would have understood, images they all would have understood, and saying like, no, it's actually not about Caesar, it's actually about Jesus, they're showing this other way, this different way. And so the angels declare his coming as a bringing of peace because even though the empire is technically at peace, it is a different experience of peace. In fact, here's how one scholar, Richard Horsley, wrote a book called The Liberation of Christmas, fantastic book that gives like the sociopolitical sort of like uh, a backdrop of, of Christmas, says this. He writes that any reader or hearer of the story in the Hellenistic Roman world, particularly in Palestine, would have understood here a direct opposition between Caesar, the savior who had supposedly brought peace, and the child proclaimed as the savior whose birth means peace. The announcement of the birth of Jesus is this intentional confrontation with the way things are. And they would have understood that. They would have been like, oh, we're in a reign of peace. We're in the Pax Romana. But actually, it's a, it's a pseudo peace. It's a false peace. It's a veneer of peace. It gives the appearance as if there is peace, but it's hanging on by a very thin thread. And if you just poke a little bit beneath the surface, you find it's only peace because of the threat of violence. It's only peace because other people are being oppressed. It's only peace because of the use of strength and manipulation by those who have power. And so there's this other, this other who's being born, who's being called the Savior, and he doesn't come in a display of might and power, but instead he comes as a helpless infant. And he isn't coming with the powerful, but instead he's born to a poor teenage girl from a small, nothing town. His birth hasn't been announced to the kings and to the most notable people, but instead to the dirty, untrustworthy shepherds who often lived as outcasts. But his birth means peace. And so it's apparent that it's a different kind of peace. 
Now, there's all kinds of ways that we could talk about what, what, what does this mean and what do we do with this, but I, I want to talk about it this way, the way that a Jewish person in the first century would have understood when they heard a declaration of peace. Because they had a, an understanding of peace that had been passed down for generation to generation. The prophets had talked about it. They longed for it. They prayed for it. And then the Christian ideas, when we read in the New Testament the ideas of peace, they're all built upon this Hebrew idea of peace that for generations had been passed down and down and down and would come from this Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is this big encompassing word that has to do with completeness or wholeness or well-being. And it's this big word that has all kinds of implications. It, it means something personal. It's incredibly personal. It has to do with wholeness and well-being within yourself. And so it's why the Apostle Paul would talk about the peace that transcends or that passes all understanding. It's this way of being where you're at rest within yourself. You're, you're not trying to anxiously be something or someone that you're not. You don't live with the shame of a brokenness uh, uh, with God because of what you've done or because of what you haven't done and that you walk around with this weight of guilt and shame or that incompleteness that you feel in the pit of your being at times, that thing where you question your identity and your worth and your purpose, the thing that makes you feel like, like you're not a good enough parent or the thing that makes you feel like that you'll never do anything of significance or of value, the thing that says that you are never trying hard enough and that thing that says there's always somebody who does it better than you, that you're always trying to catch up. It's a peace that transcends all of that to give you a sense of wholeness and well-being within yourself and a wholeness and well-being in relation to God and it's available to you and me because in Jesus God has come near because he isn't a ruler who lives far off dictating orders to his subjects but instead he's come to be with us in the mess which is why Jesus will be called in Matthew's birth narrative Emmanuel which means God with us because he has come near to to be with us because the promise of peace that the angels proclaim at that first Christmas is not necessarily that the circumstances all around you are different. It's not necessarily that the kids are quiet in the car. It's not necessarily that there's not chaos around you. It's not that your life isn't hard. It doesn't mean that everything gets fixed around you. It doesn't mean that there isn't grief and pain and sorrow and hardship. It doesn't mean any of those things, but instead it means that God will be with you in the midst of them, and that actually changes you. It changes who you are. It changes the way that you engage in what's happening around you because he is with you in it. And so it's this peace, this peace that creates a sense of wholeness and well-being within yourself. And so this peace is incredibly personal. But the problem is sometimes that's exactly where we stop with it. And what my experience has been in my experience of the church is that far too often when we talk about peace because we are trying to overcorrect from a kind of Pax Romana, Caesar bringing peace, this kind of external peace, then we make it all about an internal peace and it becomes all about me. I'm good. Things between me and God were good. The stuff within me is good. I feel at peace. And all the while, there's all this injustice happening all around you. And as long as you can ignore the injustice around you and not pay attention to that, you can keep feeling good. It's like the, the world is burning all around me, but if I keep my head buried in the sand, I'm doing good self-care, so I'm at peace, I'm good. 
And in some ways, if you stop at this point, it's actually no different from a Pax Romana kind of piece because it's a piece for some, it's a piece for few. It's a piece for those who have the luxury to turn off the injustice that's happening around them, but you're doing it at the expense of others who the injustice is happening to. And so you are achieving a personal peace, but you're doing it at the expense of ignoring others. It's still a Pax Romana kind of piece. It stops short. And this is why I think that the Hebrew word for shalom is so brilliant because it's so much bigger. It's so big and it's so encompassing. It has to do with this personal peace. It has to do with personal well-being. It has to do with personal reconciliation with God. It has to do with all of that, but it extends beyond that. It's bigger and it's more than that. It has to do with things being made right in the world. It has to do with justice being brought to places of injustice. It has to do with kids who aren't able to read because they can't afford glasses getting glasses to be able to read. It has to do with kids who don't have access to clean water and being susceptible to that, having access to clean water. It has to do with kids who are growing up and aren't able to be educated simply because they don't have the money for uniforms, having the money for uniforms. It has to do with things being made right in the world. It has to do with systems of oppression being broken. It has to do with violence no longer being the means to achieve peace. One of the ancient prophets would say that one day, one day, one day there's going to be a time where swords will be beaten into plowshares, where the weapons of violence and destruction, the things that we use to coerce others, to manipulate others, to get others to do what we want them to do, those systems, those will actually be broken down and they'll be turned into plowshares. They'll be turned into a thing that is good and right and beautiful and that produces things that are helpful and healthy for society, where broken relationships are mended, where Enemies are treated with love and respect as if they are created in the same image of the same God that you are created in. And so Paul would talk about this kind of peace as well. Here's what he says in Ephesians 2. He says that he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, the brokenness that divides in society, the brokenness there, that Jesus doesn't just come to reconcile us to God, he doesn't just come to give me a sense of well-being and purpose and meaning within myself, he comes to make the two groups, the hostility to break down those walls, to bring them together. There is a peace that extends beyond us and it brings healing with others. And so it's this peace this peace that brings healing with those parents who you've been estranged from for years. It's a peace that actively seeks to right the wrongs for the way that groups of people have been treated by the larger culture, the larger empire that we're a part of. It's a peace that treats with dignity the people who've been labeled as undignified. It's a peace that dismisses the cable news narratives and the political news narratives and instead seeks to live out a kingdom narrative of wholeness and restoration of all things being made new, of saying that Caesar and his empire don't get the final word on what peace actually is. But the thing is, just like it is incomplete to stop short with only a personal experience of peace, it's incomplete to only be pursuing this larger kind of experience of peace. Because what happens is, my experience is that when people will skip over any kind of personal peace and will instead go after breaking down systems of injustice and caring outside of themselves, what will often happen is that over time they become angry, bitter people. They're activists whose marriages are falling apart. They're doing all kinds of good for others, but they're not happy in life. 
And so if they were to like sit quiet for a moment, not engage in any of the work of activism, they can't actually sit in quiet with themselves because they have so much unresolved brokenness within themselves that they haven't dealt with. So they have to keep doing and doing and doing and doing and doing all these things because they don't want to have the quiet and the space to have to deal with that. And so they end up with this bitterness that comes out in all kinds of ways where they're constantly frustrated that other people aren't doing as much as them. Why don't you care about this as much as I do? Why aren't you after this as much? As, why aren't you changing the things that you do as much as I am? Why aren't you doing the work? It's because there's this bitterness that's growing in them more and more. And the work of peace that extends beyond you can only be appropriately done when the work of peace is also being done in you. And so my guess is that there are some of you here who you are sitting in that place, you do and you do and you do and you do and you need to open yourself up to the God who has come near in Jesus to bring you his peace. You've closed yourself off and you look good closing yourself off. If people look at your, your Instagram, it looks like you're doing so much good. But all the while you're sitting in a lot of secret personal brokenness yourself. And so maybe today, maybe today you just need to Open yourself up a bit. You need to begin to be a bit vulnerable to recognize the brokenness within yourself and open yourself up to God to bring you his peace. But some of you are sitting in a place where you are stuck in that place of personal peace. And you've got your, your like Christmas plans all figured out so that, so that you've done appropriate, good, personal self-care. You're gonna be at peace this Christmas season. It's not gonna be crazy and hectic for you. You are taking care of yourself. You are feeling whole. You are feeling complete. And you're missing that you're called to be bringers of peace beyond yourself. You need to get a bit uncomfortable as you engage in the work of bringing wholeness and restoration and justice to the things that are broken that are broken in your families and larger family systems, to the things that are broken in this city, maybe where there's systems of injustice and oppression, maybe recognizing some of the systems of racial injustice and oppression and engaging in that. Maybe, maybe it's recognizing some of the brokenness in our larger country or brokenness in the larger world that you're called to engage and to take your head out of the sand to be able to say it's not just about me making sure that I'm taken care of, but I have this peace for the purpose of extending peace. Now, I actually think at Christmas, one of the most beautiful, I, I hate Christmas songs, and I can say that now that I'm not a pastor at my church. Um, <laughs> I'd be like, gosh, do we have to sing this again? Um, I feel like we just sang it last year. But one of the most powerful and beautiful Christmas songs is the old song, O Holy Night. And its lyrics, its lyrics beautifully encapture these two experiences of peace. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. There's this personal healing and wholeness that the birth of Jesus is bringing. There's this pining within you for it and his coming, his coming shows you your worth. You are valuable, you are matter, you have purpose and significance and your soul should feel its worth. The coming of the birth of Jesus gives your soul worth. 
But then the song moves, and it moves to this place of this subversiveness with these radical lyrics that were written in the 1800s before the Emancipation Proclamation and before the Civil War. And the lyrics say this, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel, his good news, his peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. There is a peace in you that Jesus brings. And there's a peace beyond you that is breaking chains of oppression that he's calling us to engage in and he's calling us to live out. And I don't know, I don't know which of these spaces of peace you need to move into, but my guess is that you need to move into one of them. My guess is that you are falling short of one of them. My guess is that you are leaning a bit more into one than the other, and maybe today Jesus just wants you to slow down and stop and to say, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Before you do anything, before you've done anything, before you've accomplished anything, I'm just well pleased with you, and he gives you the peace that passes all understanding. May you just simply, maybe you simply need to receive that today. And maybe some of you have been incredibly good at leaning into that. And what you are missing is opening your eyes up. And even more than opening your eyes up, engaging in the hard work of bringing peace, wholeness, well-being to the spaces where it is off, to the spaces where injustice is ruling, to the spaces where oppression reigns. And at the birth of Jesus, there's an announcement of peace, but an announcement of peace actually bookends the life of Jesus. It's after he would go to the cross and he'd be buried and he would raise then from the dead. He would be resurrected. His disciples are gathered together in a room. They're scared. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going to happen to them and they're trying to make sense of it all. And Jesus shows up in the midst of them and what he says to them the first time that he sees his disciples all gathered together is this. It's peace be with you. An announcement of peace at his birth and at his resurrection, peace be with you. And so today, I don't know where you need to hear that, but I know that you need to hear those words, peace be with you. Maybe for those of you who are in places of anxiousness and unsettledness within yourself, you need to hear peace be with you. For those of you who are trying to reclaim what it means to live with God, you just simply need to hear from him, peace be with you. For those of you who have discord and brokenness in relationships, peace be with you. For those of you who look around the world and you can't help but to see as you look around the world that the world is on fire all around us and you're trying to figure out like, what do I do? How do I help? How, how do I, like, what do I do with the brokenness of the world? What's my role? What's my contribution? And peace be with you. In fact, I wanna ask you if you would do me a favor, if you would go ahead and close your eyes. If you'd open up your hands in your lap as a sign of receiving from God, And I don't know where you need to hear this, but would you just simply hear God saying to you, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Would you let God be speaking over your life 
peace be with you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. through.